as a society, uh, we love to gaze at things. We love to stare at things. Uh, Sometimes they're negative. Uh, Everybody slows down when there's a wreck. We just love to stare at somebody rear-ending somebody else. I never understand that. But we do. Everybody does it. Everybody slows down to see what the carnage is. I remember when I was really young, I do not remember the situation. I've been trying to remember it. But I was staring at somebody, maybe somebody who didn't look like me, maybe somebody with a disformity, and my mom slapping me on the leg and saying, quit staring at them because you were just gazing, you were staring. Sometimes if it's not negative, sometimes it's positive. Uh, You love to stare at somebody who's beautiful, somebody who catches your eye walking down the street, somebody who's handsome, and you just find yourself staring at them. Or maybe it's artwork, and uh, that's mine. I mean, I just love to go to the Met when I get the chance when I'm in New York and just stare at that Paul Cezanne piece or stare at one of the Rembrandts, just sit there and stare at them. Or a sunset, sitting out on the beach and just staring. But the problem is, All of those things are transitory, and I don't own that artwork. So I eventually have to leave. They eventually kick me out. And the sunset eventually goes away, and the guy or the girl eventually lose their looks. And so we've got to find something else that we can gaze at that would keep our attention. George Mueller, he pastored 1,200 people a long time ago back in London. And he also started five orphanages. And he ran those in the city as well. And when he was coming to his dying days, the estimation was he had read the Bible at least 200 times. And his prayer in the last year of his life was, God, give me one more year so I can read the Bible again because I'm not yet done gazing at the glories of Christ. I haven't fully taken it all in. I've read it 200 times plus. And I've yet to take in all the glories of who Christ is. And so as we walk through the Old Testament, uh, we see Jesus coming as a priest, Jesus coming as a king, Jesus coming as a prophet. And we see all of these glories starting to culminate now in the longing for the Messiah, in the longing for the king, somebody who's worth our gaze, somebody who's worth our time. Somebody who's worth staring at. Let me read Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees, Or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. 
And the weaned child shall put his hand on that adder's den. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. Of his resting place shall be glorious. And in that day... The Lord shall extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant, the remnants of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlines of the sea. And he'll raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. And Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west. And together they'll plunder the peoples of the east and they'll put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he'll lead people across in sandals. And there'll be a highway from Assyria. For the remnant that remains of his people. And there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. It's not on the screen, but let me just read a little bit of chapter 11. And you will say in that day, I'll give thanks to you, Lord. Verse 4. And you'll say in that day, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. This is the word of the Lord. I want to gaze with you at three things. First thing is this, that the Spirit will rest upon you, verses 1 through 5. The historical situation here in Isaiah, because we're just jumping through the scriptures, is Isaiah, at least in my opinion, stands in between watching the Assyrians attacking the north of Israel. That's going to happen in 722, historically I think know this by now. And then Judah in the south, the southern kingdom, will be attacked by the Babylonians in 586. And what's happening in Isaiah is he's standing between those two, watching one happen, watching Jerusalem be besieged, and prophetically seeing that that same thing is going to happen to Judah in the south. Jerusalem was in the south, but it was besieged by the Assyrians a couple of times. And here, the prophetic nature of this is this. You're going to be, verse 11, you're going to be cut down, Israel. You're going to be cut down to a stump. There's going to be nothing left of you as a nation. All the hard work of David, all the hard work of Solomon, all of your years of trying to keep this experiment together is going to be cut down to a stump. And then when you've lost all hope, there's going to be a root out of the stump of Jesse. Because life, when you are cut down, where is life? Life is in the roots, right? Life is where you ground yourself. That's why it says in Psalm 1, blessed is a man who delights himself in the law of the Lord. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water. When you're rooted in God's word, and even at that point you're cut down, life comes from the roots. And so from the roots of this smoldering stump of Jesse, there's going to be a hope, a Messiah, a Savior, somebody who can actually be the true priest, 
the true prophet, the true king, and the spirit of the Lord will descend upon them. And look at what it says. Who have wisdom and understanding. Each generation thinks that they have it figured out. But he'll actually have the understanding. He'll have counsel and might. Not just pithy statements, not life's little instruction booklet, not crocheted sayings, not things to try to help you get through the day. He'll have counsel and he'll have might. He'll have fire and breath in his words. And he'll have knowledge and he'll have the fear of the word. And then look at verse 3. And the delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He'll teach us. This one who is to come will teach us what it's like to delight in the fear of the Lord. In other words, Jesus loved to be obedient to his Father. Obedience today gets such a bad rap. We talk about obedience like you're suffering or like you're being oppressed That's not what obedience is at all. Obedience is finding someone or something that's worth following. Remember, this is my generation and older, so forgive me, uh, younger generation. I'll find an analogy for you later on in the sermon. But remember Dead Poets Society, Robin Williams? And at the end, there's an audible groan in the room right there. It brought back some memories for us. Remember at the end when they found that they wanted to be obedient to the character of Robin Williams, who's this poetry professor who was bucking the system, and at the end they all stood on their chairs, all those young kids, and they said, oh, captain, my captain, I've found somebody worth following. You know where that comes from? It's a Walt Whitman poem who wrote it at the death of Abraham Lincoln because he had found somebody in Whitman's idea. He found somebody who was finally worth following, somebody to be obedient to, somebody he could follow. And so he said, oh, captain, my captain. When we as Christians find ourselves delighting in the Lord, we're saying, God, I want to follow you. I actually want to be obedient to you because your obedience, it's not going to oppress me. It's actually going to set me free. And then look at what it says after this. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. This is our Lord, and this is our Savior. Now, let me ask this question. Who or what are you letting judge you? Who are you letting have an opinion over how you live your life? The freedom of Christianity is, I'm letting no one judge me but Christ. And Christ is always going to be kind to me and gracious to me. He's not going to judge by my appearance or judged by what I put out there? No, he's greater than that. He'll decide equity for the meek, and with righteousness he'll judge the poor. And sure, his words come with power. That's why it says at the end of verse 4, he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. You can't live underneath his obedience and commands without his forgiveness. And then verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Now, a little bit of history here. When somebody was going to put a belt on, you would put a belt on in order to wrestle. So you would find somebody, if you wanted to, the, the game was this. If you wanted to both wrestle with each other, you would put a belt on, and that person would put a belt on, and the match wasn't over. It wasn't pinning somebody one, two, three, like we do it now. The match wasn't over until you wrestled the belt off of them. So you had to wrestle them down and then untie the belt and wrestle their belt away from them. And so when he puts righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, he said, I'm going to come wrestle you. And what's he wrestling away from us? 
he's wrestling away from us our belt of self-righteousness, our belt of thinking we have it all figured out. And he says, no, I actually have the true belt of righteousness over me. It's this beautiful picture of the Spirit of God resting on the incarnate Savior, Christ. Now, let's apply it, and then we'll move on quickly to the next two points. I don't know if you saw the quote or the statistic, the poll this uh, past week. 30, uh, I'm sorry, 64% of the country believes that either Biden or Trump are too old to run again. And uh, this is not a political statement. That's just the poll that was out. I'll start preparing you for the next election next year because we lose our minds every four years. It takes me a year of prep just to get us through it, and then we get through it. We all kind of come out of it, and we remember that we're all Christians again, and then we you know, go for another three years, and we move on. We'll start that preparation process next year. I, I don't think the problem is that anybody's too old. You know what I think the problem is? They're not old enough. We need an ancient of days. <laughs> we need somebody who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We need somebody who's old enough to have seen all of human history and to know what's happening in your heart and my heart and have complete wisdom and understanding. We need somebody who's actually older that we can obey. In other news this week, did you see the web telescope pictures? Some of them, are, I think they're going to be on the screen. That's one. That's an actual photograph, people, of a star being formed from the latest web telescope. I think there's another one that's going to come up. Those are three stars, if I understand right, that are dying. Those images coming back now from the Webb telescope. Now, with those images in your mind, I want to read to you Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The heavens declare the glory of God, and we've just seen parts of it that we've never seen before. And all things were made for and by and through him. I'm trying to press down on this fact that we sometimes believe that he really is just a moral teacher, or a good idea, or, or a good example of how we are to live. Did you catch what happened in Colossians chapter 1? All of the universe is made for, by, and through him, and he reconciled all of it on the cross. All of the transcendence, all the way down to all of the eminence. See, the cross isn't, give me a couple sentences, the cross isn't actually that amazing. If it's just a man giving his life for other men. Because plenty of men have done that. Plenty of men have jumped on a grenade in Vietnam and given their life for their comrades. And 
greater life has no one than this that he laid down his life for his friends. So I'm not trying to diminish that. But when it is the God of the universe, by him, through him, and for him, everything has been created, who says, now I'm going to come to the cross to reconcile you sinners with me so that you can have life, that's when it becomes something that's gaze-worthy, something that we should spend all of our lives and at least a Sunday thinking about and gazing at and being marveled by and astonished. And then let me take it a little bit further than this. The spirit of the Father rests on the Son. It hovered over the waters. That spirit, Jesus himself is going to say, it is for your good that I go. Otherwise, the spirit won't come. And so he says, I've got to leave so I can give you my Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ that at Pentecost now comes to us. And when we become believers, that spirit, that same spirit that was with Jesus is now living in us. And so we live in accordance with that spirit. You know what the good news is there? You don't have to live according to your own spirit of your flesh, of what you think is right or wrong. And you don't have to live according to the spirit of the world, which is a German word here called zeitgeist. The zeitgeist, the, the, you know, the morales of the world, whatever they are. Alexander Solzhenitsyn says it this way, from my perspective... I believe that the third, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn was uh, in the Gulag Archipelagos. He was Russian, thrown in prison there. He said, from my perspective, I believe that the Third World War is not going to take place because the Third World War has taken place, and it's been lost by the Western world, which did not realize it. This was years ago that he wrote this. A Western world that is suffering from a degenerative sickness which is eating out its internal organs and will bring about a final destruction on account of a lack of moral fiber. Now, most of us probably agree with that sentiment that uh, Solzhenitsyn saw 50 years ago. What do we do? Well, we live according to the Spirit. And so listen to 1 Corinthians 12. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but of the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them in everyone. To each is giving a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. To another faith by the same spirit to another gifts of healing by one spirit to another working of miracles to another prophecy to another the ability to distinguish between spirits to another various kinds of tongues to another the interpretation of tongues and all of these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills so in this life while the moral fiber is degrading which believe that or not, but let's just assume that it is, that this world is broken. God gives the same spirit of Isaiah 11 given to Christ. He gives that same spirit to you. So you get to live in step with the spirit. You get to live according to the spirit, not the spirits of this world, not the spirit of your flesh, but according to the spirit of Christ, the savior who now lives and resides in you. That's nothing short of miraculous the Spirit will dwell upon you, and the shalom to dwell with you. Shalom, 
a deeper Hebrew word for peace. I love verses 6 through 9 because God's already given you the Holy Spirit, but verses 6 through 9 gives us a picture of what will happen. These domestic animals lying together with these other animals. Uh, This little child uh, playing over the adder's cove, playing with the cobra. Uh, it's all this is beautiful picture. It's almost like um, the only thing I can think of is like Halloween when all of these like kids dr- dress up in like a lion's outfit or like another outfit and they're all like kind of hanging out together. And you're like, y'all know in, in regular world, you don't exist together. But here in this picture, all of these things, this perfect peace and this perfect shalom. Let me just say this, this point will go quickly. If you're younger, you're probably filled with anxiety. Uh, because all the statistics say that you are. The anxiety rates right now are the highest among teens that they've ever been, as far as they can tell, in recorded human history. You're just anxious, nervous about how you'll look, whether you'll be accepted, whether or not you'll be uh, approved by the world, whether or not you'll be enough, whether or not you'll uh, do enough. Just anxiety. And you know the other statistic that's out there? If you're older, regret regret and resentment resentment are at all-time highs for older generation. Have I done enough? Did I do enough? I regret not doing this or not saying this or not having that conversation. So what's our hope, friends? Our hope and our confidence is that one day this shalom, this perfect peace in the world will be true. Now, here's the good news. The worst possible case scenario for a Christian, the worst case scenario is this, that one day you will be made new and restored and redeemed and Jesus will wipe away every tear from your eye and bring us into the new creation. That's the worst case scenario. It all goes up from there. So that means in this world, although it's difficult and broken, we can live at peace. And when Jesus talks about giving the Holy Spirit, he said in John chapter 16, my peace I give you, my peace I leave you. I don't give you as the world gives. I have come to overcome the world so that you might have peace, shalom. And this passage, verses 6 through 9, are worth gazing at and looking at and wondering about, thinking how God's going to work this together in this perfect picture of his shalom in this world and then living out of that. I like what the uh, Princeton novelist Frederick Buechner says when he says, maybe above all, they are tales of transformation where creatures are revealed in the end as what they truly are. The ugly duckling becomes the great white swan. The frog is revealed to be a prince, and the beautiful but wicked queen is unmasked in all of her ugliness. They're tales of transformation, where the ones who live happily ever after, as by no means everybody does in fairy tales, are transformed into what they have it in them at their best to be. Uh, Frederick Buechner writes that in a book called The Gospel as Truth, Comedy, and Myth, and Fairy Tale. In other words, maybe this is the greatest myth, a true myth, 
Maybe it's the greatest mythological understanding of world that's ever happened that one day you and I are going to look at each other as eternal creatures and see what we were always meant and intended to be. And it's going to be beautiful. So, friends, shalom, peace in this world. Shalom. Gaze at that. Gaze at the plan of what God wants to do. And then lastly, a signal to move you on. I love this picture in verse 10 because it goes from this this place of peace and contentment and rest, verses 6 through 9, to this place now of, of movement. And so look at what it says, verse 10. In that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for all peoples. Of him shall the nations acquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In other words, it's this sign, it's this white flag, it's this noise, this bell to rally people back to Christ, to move people back to him, the Savior. Nicholas Waltersdorf, a theologian who um, lost his son in a climbing accident, tragically, and wrote a book about it called Lament for a Son, wrote this, when God's cup of suffering is full, our world's redemption is fulfilled. Until justice and peace embrace, God's dance of joy is delayed. But the bells for the feast of divine joy are the bells for the shalom of the world. This is the only way to find peace in this world. Peace with your friends, peace with your neighbors, peace with yourself. The only way is to see that there's this sign that has been raised, this signal that has been raised that says, all people now come rally to me. And what is that signal? John chapter 12, Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowds answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? And so Jesus says to him, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you might become sons of the light. It's this signal, the cross and his ascension is this signal, this rally point for all of the world to come and to move towards him and that's why we have all of these pictures if you look at verse 11 from egypt from pathros from cush from elam from shiner from hamath for all these people who are dispersed verse 12 from judah the four corners of the earth not one will ever be lost jesus will say of all the people that have been given to me i will collect them all together on that day and there will be a highway Out of Assyria, the people that thought they were forgotten, the people that thought Jesus had completely forgotten who they were or where they were, there will be a highway coming out of Assyria with all of the redeemed people, black, white, Jew, Gentile, male, female, all of them coming to worship around the throne of Christ. Gaze at that, friends. These things are worth gazing at. The glories of Christ and the new heavens and what Christ intends to do with this world and these people that we dine with and swim with and eat with and fight with 
what God intends to do with the people from India and Ethiopia and Egypt and South America who we've never met but call on the name of Christ to gather us all together and to bring us home. Um, when I was in Israel, in college, I went over there and studied for a month. And I came back, and I got held up by the um, authorities because my suitcase had a piece missing, and it had those, uh, one of those uh, things in it, poles, and it was an old suitcase. And I, I didn't know this, but apparently people would break off the bottom of that and stick cocaine up there and smuggle it in. So they thought I had done that. And so I got taken back, and I got investigated, and they had to do everything, and it was really awful. I was there for hours and hours and hours, and just questioning me over and over and over again. And I'm uh, 20, and I'm scared, and I finally get through uh, customs. I was all by myself. The whole group had left for another flight. They'd left me behind. No man left behind, not on a mission trip, friends. They will, <laughs> they will leave you behind in a skinny minute if... Uh, if they need to catch their flight. And so I finally came. I finally got, a day and a half later, I finally made it to Dallas. And I had to go through customs in Dallas. And I was tired. I was a little scared. I was frustrated. You know, I had gone through this whole ordeal. I thought I was going to get arrested and spend the rest of my life in some prison in uh, Tel Aviv. I finally made it to Dallas. And the, the guy looked at me and he said, have you had a rough trip? I said, yeah, I got held up in customs. I thought I was going to get arrested. And I kind of told him the whole story. I just kind of involved, you know, just kind of went at it on him. And uh, he looked at me, and I'll never forget this. He looked at me without even looking at my passport, took the stamp and went, you're home now, son. You're home now. That beautiful picture where the justification of faith alone where God, by his grace and his justification, looks at your passport and says, there's no reason to let you into this heaven except I am justifying you by my son. And now you're finally home. I want you to move towards Christ. You need to enjoy the shalom of this world. You need to remember that the spirit will dwell with you and in you, and you live out of that. But if you're anxious... If you're tired, if you're weary, if you're living without any kind of purpose, if you're fearful, if you're lazy, if you're apathetic, if you're scared, if you're a sinner, if you're struggling with habitual sin, move towards Christ. His cross and his ascension has been risen up so you know where he is. So move to him. Move to him today. Repent, tell them what you need to tell them, and then enjoy the glories of Christ found in his word. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And Father, now we pray that you would enlarge in our minds and enlarge in our hearts for you and for your glory. We so often stare and gaze at things that aren't worth our time or our energy. But may we revel, rest, and rejoice in the shalom of this world. 
And may, may that give us a vision for how we bring peace to our neighbors and our friends. And may we know that we're forgiven, that we've been stamped, justified, not by our self-righteous belt, but by the righteousness of Christ, and he clothes us. And may we know that we're accepted, and he doesn't judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what he hears. You know us, and you know all of us, and you forgive us. May we, as a church, gaze at your glories today and rejoice in you for those who are lonely, for those who are tired, weary, for those who are struggling with sin. May we repent. May we move towards you. God, would you be our lover, our refuge, our hope, our Savior, our Messiah. Be everything that you said you would be to us. By your Holy Spirit, give us peace. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and behold the wonder.